Watermaster Studio presents Brushing Up, a miniature painting and tabletop gaming podcast. Welcome to Brushing Up, the miniature painting and tabletop gaming podcast where I, Dan the Quartermaster, talk with hobby industry professionals, community leaders and volunteers, as well as content creators about their experiences in the hobby. My guest on this episode of Brushing Up is Eric from Eric's Hobby Workshop, a YouTube channel that is dedicated to producing amazing scratch-built terrain tutorials. I caught up with Eric to have a chat with him about his experiences in the hobby and what it takes to be a scratch-built terrain-making master. And joining me remotely, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, is Eric from Eric's Hobby Workshop. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be uh, on. Yeah, yeah, great to have you. How have you been? I've been well, thanks. How about yourself? Yeah, yeah, surviving, busy, but, uh, you know, best way to be, isn't it? It sure is. Now, before we have a chat to you about your um, YouTube channel and the amazing Scratch Build Terrain projects that you uh, put on there, which uh, I'm a huge fan of, uh, let's fire off some obligatory hobby questions that I'm required by Hobby Law to ask everyone that comes on the show. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> Sounds good. So the first question is, how did you get into the hobby? How did I get into the hobby? Well, I think this is always an interesting question because most people talk about the first time they encountered, you know, Warhammer, one of their friends had it or a neighbor or whatever it is. But mm -hmm. I think it goes earlier than that. Right. Almost every toy is something miniature. Um, so it'd be, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a kid who's not interested in playing with miniaturized versions of things that exist in the real world. And then, so the jump to the more detailed, um, you know, miniatures rather than toys is a very small one as far as I can see it. And, um, you know, it, pretty much every kid in my elementary school around starting about the fourth grade, right. it was kind of a craze for Warhammer. So, you know, one day it wasn't there and then all of a sudden, Almost every kid seemed to have a collection. And uh, my first experience that I remember vividly was coming over to my next door neighbor's house. And they had um, some of the second edition 40K uh, orcs and Gretchens set up on their pool table in the cool. basement. <laughs> nice. And I remember just thinking, you know, this is like another level of detail and a dedicated play space that's actually supposed to look like a natural environment or something a little bit more immersive than just playing on, you know, a floral carpet or something like that. So of course, yeah. I was drawn to that, you know, pretty well right away. And then I think um, because I was an artistic kid, and I had, you know, fine motor skills a little bit better than some of my peers. I, uh, I was kind of drawn into the painting side of it pretty quickly because there were a lot of kids my age, you know, we were only 10, 11 years old who yeah. couldn't dot a eyeball that's a half a millimeter across to save their life. And they were, you know, <laughs> We've all been there yeah <laughs> so yeah and um i guess it just sort of grew from there has it over the years and yeah you know i uh shortly after that i was able to get my brothers i have four brothers and mm -hmm. i was able to get them all interested in the hobby we were on a road trip together and i brought one of the flyers they used to give out in games workshop yeah um that had the i remember it had lots of beautiful images of various things that were going on at the time, you know, around 1999, 2000, but the centerfold with the lizard men 
and the Bretonians was the one that sticks out in my mind. And I remember Classic just kind of staring at that one. Yeah. yeah, just a beautiful thing. And we were on this long road trip driving from Toronto down to North Carolina, which is not a short drive. It's like no, a really <laughs> long drive, actually. And Very uh, long. so we had, you know, a couple Game Boys and some magazines. And that was one of the things that was in the rotation. And uh, all of us were kind of enraptured by it. And when we went to visit my grandmother, who lived down there, uh, she gave us each $20, as you know, grandparents are sometimes prone to do. And yes. we kind of made a pack that we would all spend them on Warhammer when we got back and start collecting. So we all kind of started at the same time, which was a really great sort of way to get into the hobby all at the same level and um, keep each other going. So for a long time, Warhammer was, um, you know, the, the, the fad that I mentioned at my school was yeah. fleeting. It was only about a year that the kids my age were into it um, very seriously. And mm. there was, um, you know, that was a good period to get going. But after that, it fizzled out pretty quickly and kids didn't want to have anything to do with it because they were worried they, you know, it wasn't a new cool thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I consistently played it with my brothers when we'd get together at Christmas and things and have, you know, or in the summer where we'd have idle days, we, uh, we would do a lot of it together and we'd do big battles and um and so just the uh the family interest in it kept me into it for many many years later than most of my peers and oh. uh i never really you know there were times where there were sort of lulls in my interest in the hobby um when i was in high school i didn't play very much for example yeah um but i never completely put it away i always had it sort of lingering nearby and would bring it out around christmas or something like that so I don't think I've taken as long of a hiatus as some people have, but uh, I definitely, um, I definitely have gotten more into it in recent years than I was for many years. So it's nice to sort of uh, see the evolution of it over the years. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people I, I see it quite often on um, many hobbyists' Instagrams or Facebooks. They'll put up comparison photos of like the first model they're painted and how they're painting now and. Uh, it's just interesting to see how their skills have progressed over the over the time. Do you do you find that's happened with you, obviously, or not so um, much? <laughs> it's funny because I think I don't I don't paint the way I used to paint, which is I used to try really really hard to get a really really high level result, and mm. for that reason I was very very slow, and most of my yeah. models were unpainted. Oh, no. And one of my brothers had an empire army, and I was playing orcs and goblins at the time. And he just one day just, you know, put a flat coat of paint on every surface in the color it was supposed to be. And I was trying yeah. to do, you know, highlighting and all these little details. And and he had a painted army and I didn't. I had like seven or eight painted guys and then <laughs> a bunch of. Um, and so I kind of have changed my approach a lot recently. Right. And I still put in a little bit more time in some of the things, but I think the biggest incremental difference between what I was doing then and what I was doing now is just the techniques that I have that are different. Like I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't know to thin the paints back in the day. Yeah. Nobody ever told me that I was supposed to do that. And uh, I had a lot of trouble trying to paint little details where the paint would dry on my brush. By the time I poke it down into the eye, it doesn't <laughs> make a mark because the paint is dried on the tip of my brush. Oh no! And I had a tremendous amount of frustration. And I think that's one of the beautiful things for people joining in the hobby today is you can go on Instagram, you can go on YouTube, you can go on any number of hobby blogs and websites that just didn't exist back then. And get no. a huge amount of information. And, um, and yeah, I think that's why we're seeing such an explosion in the hobby right now.
Yeah. It's, it's definitely um, fantastic to see that there's, there's so much uh, great content out there like your channel and, uh, and other uh, content creators as well. Um, but you mentioned how you, you, you changed your technique in painting, which leads on to the next question. Do you see yourself more as a painter or a gamer when it comes to the hobby? Uh, I, I definitely would not consider myself primarily a gamer. Mm -hmm. I what my favorite thing to do really is to have nice looking models and nice looking terrain. Yeah. And then just to kind of stare at it and play around <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I love playing games here and there, but I'm not, uh, necessarily a competitive player i don't really like the idea of um changing the composition of my army based on a meta or something like that like i'm mm. more interested in um having a what i consider to look like a balanced army on the table so you know a couple big guys a few squads of little guys you yeah know, maybe a tank or two like there's kind of an aesthetic balance that i want my army to have that's completely um detached from how competitive it's going to be on the table but that doesn't mean i don't take it seriously or try to win when i play no but, of course uh, i really don't play that often compared to how much time i spend on the hobby aspect of it yeah. uh, between building terrain and painting and collecting models so i guess that puts you in the the kind of the painter model builder camp um, i would say so, so yeah so the follow-up question there is uh what are you currently working on what's currently on the painting table I'm trying to paint a couple Necromunda gangs. Oh, what Necromunda um, gangs? So I just bought an old box of scavies. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty cool. Um, and I have a couple that I've been kicking around that I haven't got to in a shamefully long time. I bought the Dark Uprising box when it was new. And so I'm just putting together some of those uh, uh, enforcers mm -hmm. and uh, subjugators. And then I'm also doing, trying to spruce up uh, some of my half-painted gangs. I've got Eschers and Goliaths that can use some work. And then uh, Gene Stealer Cult as well. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get together enough gangs that mm. look good so that I can just rope somebody who comes over to visit me into playing a game with a low barrier to entry. And say, look, I've got a list built up here. Um, you can choose from one of these six or seven gangs and mm. I'll set up the terrain and how can you say no, you know, I'm trying yeah. to just make it as accessible as possible. So make I can them a, people into this hobby with me, make them an offer. They can't refuse. Exactly. Yeah. That sounds really cool. We, um, on the last episode, I had, uh, Denny flowers, the author of fire made flesh on the show. So it was great chatting Necromunda with him and, and here we go. We're chatting Necromunda with you as well. Right on. Yeah, I, yeah. Necromunda is one that just captures my imagination, like, in a really, you know, it, it really grips it. I think there's so much potential for cool stories in this uh, setting that they've created. Yeah. So it just uh, really gets my, my brain going. Yeah, definitely. There's so much scope uh, for uh, what you can do with your gangs and, and the terrain, which you're, as you know, all too well. Um, there's just you know, the sky's the limit in uh, a place where I'm guessing a lot of the citizens that live there don't see the sky. So, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've been trying to think of ways to capture that feeling of uh, looking up and seeing, you know, conduits and pipes and wires mm. rather than seeing sky um, on yeah. the table, because that part is, um, I think, a little bit missing from it and would really be a cool element to capture into it. So yeah. I have some things coming down the pipeline that are going to be in that direction. 
Fantastic. Sounds awesome. But, Coming down uh, the pipeline, no, no pun intended. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We've become one of those shows, I'm afraid. Um, so the final uh, obligatory hobby question I've got for you is, what advice can you give someone who's interested in getting into the hobby? I would say uh, just get started with what interests you and mm -hmm. uh, don't try to, uh, don't overthink the result that you're going to end up with in the short term because it's a process and yeah. uh, you know i think uh, if, if you if you go on instagram or or and see these really high level creators and compare yourself to them and make yourself feel bad that's not going to do you any favors and you'd be mm -hmm. probably surprised to know that even the top level creators have somebody that they look up to that makes them feel insecure about themselves too so i would say just get going just enjoy what you're doing, focus on enjoying the process more than on results. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're not like the, I think, I think you can get into sort of a sticky situation where if, if the only part of it you enjoy is having a perfectly painted miniature or a finished piece or whatever, then mm. that's a, a very small percentage of, of the process. Um, if you enjoy the process, you're going to enjoy the, the whole thing a lot more. You're going to have a longer longevity in the hobby. You're going to have many hours of meditative bliss and relaxation, which is, I think, the people who who enjoy the process are the ones who really stick around in this hobby and really get the most out of it. So, oh, Sound advice there. Um, well, let's crack on and have a chat about uh, your YouTube channel, Eric's Hobby Workshop, where you make some really great uh, terrain and, and hobby projects. Um, but I guess the best place to start would be the beginning. Uh, you know, I'm very curious as to what inspires content creators like yourself to start doing, uh, you know, taking your hobby and putting it onto a, a platform like YouTube. Um, so what, what inspired you to start doing your scratch build terrain tutorials on YouTube and, and how did it all start out? Well, I think I learned to build terrain from old white dwarf magazines and games workshop books. And mm. um, those things were what I usually gravitated to when I would open a white dwarf magazine or something like that is seeing the behind the scenes, how they made it. I thought that was just so, you know, so cool and made me feel like there was so much potential to what I could do in my, in my hobby. That would yeah. be uh, different from what everybody else puts on the tabletop, which is, you know, something that's kind of important to me is, uh, um, I would prefer to not have my tabletop setup and my army look exactly the same as everybody else's. So while I may enjoy terrain kits or, yeah. you know, painting models as they come out of the box, it's, uh, it's more interesting to me when there's a discretionary creative component to it. And, mm. uh, you know, that really ticks that box. And I just, that stuff has sort of waned away in recent years when I was in, uh, Back when I was in university, there was, I would go on uh, Terra Genesis Forum, which was a terrain and uh, focused forum where people right. would post their work in progress shots and their tutorials and stuff. And I was really, that kind of drew me back into the hobby a little bit a couple of years ago when I was making some stuff. And then, you know, forums have kind of died and been replaced by social media. And I kind of gravitated onto YouTube to see what was out there in terms of these terrain tutorials. And because I, I always got a big amount of inspiration from these things as well so yeah it's uh and i i found there wasn't a lot of what i was looking for 
in that particular vein. You know, there's some really great guys making terrain on YouTube. Mm. Um, Black Magic Craft was one that I really enjoyed, but more focused on Dungeons and Dragons type stuff. And, you know, yeah. Wylock's Armory was yeah. another one that I really admired. Um, and he was, I, I remember specifically watching his terrain tutorial about how to make a Sector Mechanicus sort of modular rig out of chipboard and cans. And I thought that was really wonderful. And wow. Uh, the, so I was I was inspired by those guys, but I f still felt like there was um, something that I could contribute that would be something that's not seen on there. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just with my wife in a store one day and I saw this water gun and I was looking at it and I was thinking about how I could make a Necromunda terrain out of it because I had been sort of gravitating into the Necromunda terrain in my personal time. And for some reason, I decided to make a tutorial about it. I, I'm not really sure where it came from. I don't really remember exactly the the rationale, but it just was something that I felt like I should do and I wanted to do and I thought people might enjoy it and people yeah. have enjoyed it. So that's that's really cool. Um to to sort of see that um you know, it's something as simple as uh, you know a, a terrain project like t turning a water gun into a piece of necromancer terrain being the impetus to actually go, you know what, I'm going to document this i'm gonna share my experience with other people um you know and i think that's a, a big part of our hobby is that nobody truly owns ideas you know um you just put them out into the ether and then um you know see what happens so i think that's really cool yeah you know uh and i think part of it is the fact that um as much as i would like there's a small part of my brain saying hoard all your techniques and, you know, keep them to yourself. I think there's <laughs> yeah. a larger part that, that wants to pay forward all the techniques that I've learned over the years from yeah. people sharing their process. And I think just from a pure entertainment perspective, a lot of people enjoy the vicarious crafting aspect of watching me build something. And if you think about across other entertainment platforms and uh, media, how much, uh, before and after and uh is like really a popular entertainment genre you know whether it's yeah. a makeover or whether it's uh <laughs> you know how it's made type shows um people seem to like that stuff and i like that stuff so i figure it's uh it's a fun thing to do is, is show the process and uh, i get a real kick out of all the time people are uh, sending me pictures of things they've made where i can see sort of my influence in it but they've done their own thing in various mm. ways and that's just really, you know, really warms my heart. Like I would really, I want to go out in the world and see more beautiful war game tables. And that's, yeah. uh, so, so this is how I plant the seeds for that to happen. <laughs> yeah. Issue the challenge. Yeah. It's not so much a challenge as, uh, you know, it's, um, I want to form the, the, yeah, just, just kind of spread inspiration and, and, yeah. and, and show that other people are doing this and how much fun it can be. Yeah. Exactly. Sort of. I mean, when I say channels like a friendly sort of, you know, go out there and, and, you know, give it a go yourself and, you know. Oh, yeah. 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 An invitation type challenge. Exactly. Totally. There we go. Totally. Yeah. An invitation. <laughs> Probably better word there. Um, but speaking of process, I'm curious to know what goes into, you know, making your YouTube tutorials. Um, a few episodes ago, I had Duncan Rose from the Duncan Rose Painting Academy on the sh on the show and and we were chatting about his process um both when he made the tutorials for games workshop and for the for the painting academy but i'm really curious to know what goes into 
the actual production side of things, um, you know, because obviously everybody's going to have their own different methods of putting together a, a tutorial or a YouTube, um, you know, video. So how how do you go about making your uh, your YouTube tutorials? So yeah, I've talked to some other creators who who do do it differently from me, which is always interesting because I always thought that the way I do it is the only way to do it because it's the only way that makes sense to me. But what I do basically is I start out mm-hmm. um, with kind of just a concept, and sometimes I'll sketch that out on paper, and sometimes I won't. Yeah. Um, but what I'm thinking about is um, a couple things. I'm thinking about the overall aesthetic appeal of it, which mm-hmm. goes into the 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 shapes that comprise the piece that I'm going to build, the silhouette of it, what the kind of stylistic aspects of it um, will evoke, you know, uh, whether there's a specific architectural style or aesthetic that I'm trying to capture. And I try to figure out those pieces at the beginning just to kind of figure out the so-called visual language, I guess, that the piece is going to use to make it look the way I want it to feel. Yeah. And once that's sort of established, or at least I have a sandbox of ideas I can play in later, then I'll Mm. basically just start crafting from the bottom up. I don't often work in sub-assemblies or with a great deal of prior planning, because part of my process is taking the pieces that I have, whether they're uh, raw materials like an insulation foam or foam board, or they're more salvaged, like bottles and things like that or even bits of pre-existing war game kits and terrain my approach is kind of i hold them up against each other and see how they look and i might be working towards a broad and undefined plan but there's never i i haven't done any projects where it's very carefully planned from beginning to end before i start crafting and that's and so the consequence of this is for my filming process i kind Mm -hmm. of just film what I'm doing. And uh, I try to get a good angle. I try to have it well lit. You know, I try to clean up yep. the background of my workspace so people don't judge me too much. <laughs> uh, try, and, um, you know, there there are certain tricks I've learned over the years. Like, you know, when you have, when you go to the start editing and you have gigabytes and gigabytes of garbage footage of just the yeah. back of your hand and doing the same thing a hundred <laughs> times over, oh, you no. sort of learn tricks where even if it's the not the most convenient angle to hold your hands you just need to get a representative shot of something you're doing if it's something you're repeatedly doing like say i'm cutting 20 shapes that are the same i'll just Mm. get one shot of me doing it once properly for the camera and then i'll turn the camera off and do the other 19 in a more comfortable position yes so little tricks like that help certainly and then uh, usually pretty much once i'm done the whole project i will start editing together the footage and i'm kind of going through with an eye for um, how, how illustrative is this of what I'm actually doing and what I'm trying to communicate? Mm. Uh, what am I going to say over top of this? So how much of this footage do I need to include? Yeah. Because I'm already thinking about the voiceover as I'm editing. Of course. And then I think about, um, and you know, there are sometimes times where I just don't have good footage of something and I need to get a little bit creative from time to time. I have if it's possible, uh, recreated footage that's it's just sort of staged <laughs> All to, right. try to, to try to show what I, what I was doing at a certain point. Sure. Um, because the footage didn't turn out, but, uh, and then, and then basically once I've kind of edited it together and 
I then come back and do a voiceover and um, yeah. it's pretty much, I keep it fairly improvisational when I'm doing the voiceover and, you know, re-record bits where I'm stumbling over my words too badly or stuff like that. But I, I don't end up getting it perfect, but I think it's a little bit more accessible if it just feels like somebody talking to you rather than a super scripted, polished thing. So, yeah. And I also find, you know, I sometimes little jokes pop up here and there, funny things, funny moments happen a little bit more organically if you keep it a little bit more unstructured, which mm -hmm. is a, in a contrast to some, a lot of creators I, I've spoken to will write a script, record their entire voiceover, and then edit the footage together over top of their voiceover. And okay. I don't generally write a script per se. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I'll script elements where I'm talking to the camera about a specific concept or something like that, that I want to communicate. That's less of the blow by blow crafting process. Mm. But for the most part, I don't do that. And, uh, and then after, after that's done, I will film a bunch of glamour shots with a big setup of uh, previously done terrain pieces that I've done. And I'll get in with the lighting and I'll add all kinds of, and I'll try to get some really cool shots of the, of the terrain that sort of add that sense of cinematography and immersion that makes, yeah. uh, and yeah, and that, that can be very, very time consuming that part. So, and the weird part is when I look at the YouTube statistics, it's like a lot of people tune out at the end when I start showing all the cool shots, which I thought would be the part that people skip <laughs> to, but yeah. it just shows, you know, you, you never know Maybe until just, you get out there. And, yeah. yeah. Maybe they're just thinking, oh, you, you show me what I need to know. I'm going to go build it myself. And they just, you know, yeah, it could be jump. a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think there's uh, some of some of the time, if I'm not speaking over the end part where I'm showing off the shots, uh, maybe people are thinking like they they're already crafting and they're just listening for when I stop talking, and then they'll switch to another video. <laughs> but this is part of the fun of being a YouTube creator. You try to figure out what works and what doesn't, and what resonates, and then sort of balance that with what you uh, the type of content you want to create and. Um, and it's a nonstop process. Yeah, I, it's constantly evolving, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, YouTube is an interesting sort of meta game of, of finding what what clicks with the audience and what what uh, what's the sort of content people want to see and what they engage with well and what uh, what doesn't. Because it's you know videos that might have done really well five years ago might not do well in today's YouTube climate. Like it's. Yeah. things are changing pretty quickly and it's got to keep uh, up with those trends yeah yeah it, and also it's just a i think an overall evolution of of uh, quality and standards and maybe people's attention spans are shrinking by the day as well so <laughs> <laughs> oh no well hopefully they're still listening to the show um i was just going to ask uh, the next question was has there been a particular um terrain project on your youtube channel that has uh stood out for you as be it for, for better or for worse um yeah maybe maybe there's one project that you've really sort of you know enjoyed and looked back on quite fondly and then maybe there's another one that sort of you've you've looked at and gone oh you know i could have done that better but oh you know i just had to get it out you know punched out in time to upload it onto the to the the channel i don't know you you tell me is there any any terrain projects that really stand out for you yeah absolutely um the ones that i'm most happy with i think are i, I did what's uh a desert wasteland fort about a year ago yeah i uh, saw little, that it was really cool yeah i i love that piece i think it's so cool it's not very 
easy to store. It's very big. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do more pieces like that. And that's one of the reasons actually, just before I jumped on the call with you, I went and bought some large shelves from Home Depot so I can oh, right. optimize my storage. Cause I'm going to do some more pieces like that. I really, I really got a kick cool. out of that one. I think it's, um, um, I'm really happy with the way that there are many different angles from which it is aesthetically pleasing and yeah. little, what I call sub compositions, where when you zoom in, it's almost like acts as a, a backdrop at the miniature level, but it also works as mm -hmm. a whole, as a large piece. So yeah. I have plans to uh, emulate that scope of building and that, not exactly that style, but uh, I have some plans that are coming out fairly shortly that are going to be in that vein that I'm excited about. Right. And then other than that, the Space Marine Fortress I'm really proud of, which is a very, very different project than, than the one I just mentioned, the Desert Wasteland Fort. And mm. it's uh, a modular thing that's very much more... Uh, geometric and sort of basic, so to speak, but I'm pretty yep. proud of the design that I came up with where it has an interlocking system yeah. where the wall sections interlock with the buttresses and there's a sort of clean repeating pattern. I think um, as, as strange as this may be to somebody who's never crafted, it's the simple clean things can be harder to craft than the detail encrusted improvisational pieces. Okay, um, why is that? I, because it's easier to hide your mistakes when you have a ton of detail and mm -hmm. um, and things like that. Because you can always just put an extra piece of detail on top. But if you're going for symmetry, if you're going for cleanliness, if you're going yeah. for crispness, then you have to be a little bit more precise and a little bit more premeditated, which, as I mentioned before, is not exactly the approach that I usually take. So I'm, I'm pleased with how that one turned out. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and then there's a couple of my Necromunda pieces that I'm really happy with. Uh, yeah. With the, um, and um, and the cool thing is they all kind of are compatible together. And some of them can even stack on top of each other and make these spire-like structures, which is wow. a direction you're going to see more of in the coming months. But I think the last one I would mention is I did a, one uh, ruined row houses last summer. Mm -hmm. And that one is special for me because I, I get probably the most messages from people who have copied that tutorial blow for blow exactly and sent right. me a picture of it. And that's all, I always get a kick out of that where I, I get a picture of the piece that I built and I see somebody's made it almost exactly the same with very small, slight differences. It's kind of surreal, you know, and yeah. it's, uh, it's very flattering and, um, and, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of them that I'm very happy with. And um, even the ones that I would do differently, I don't at all regret putting them out there. No, of course and, not. And uh, I need yeah. to, I think, if anything, um, put more things out there that I'm a little bit less confident about. Because there have been some projects that I've made 80% of and then put them in the vault because I wasn't happy with how they looked. And I think that uh, some people probably would have still enjoyed them anyway. So it's, you know, an ongoing uh, process as a creator to figure out how to how to manage all those things. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I guess we all have those like hobby projects that we've kind of, as you say, gotten like, you know, part of the way through and then sort of just given up on or, you know, lost interest in. So it would be kind of cool to sort of see, you know, um, maybe from a terrain perspective, yeah, how, how that could be done. Yeah, you know, I have some some things that are finished that I just didn't ever put the video together for oh. because I and, and then there are times when I'll I'll do something small thinking I'll do a short video and mm. then I'll end up uh, 
thinking, well, this isn't enough. And then the video ends up being six or seven small things put together. And it's <laughs> a very sort of, uh, the scope gets away from me sometimes, but that's all part of the fun. Yeah, uh, definitely comes across in the, uh, the video, the, the fun factor. Um, I, I am curious to know if your approach or methods have changed when it comes to making scratch build terrain since starting your YouTube uh, channel. Now that obviously you're putting uh, that part of your hobby on display to the public, uh, have things changed for you, like your methods and approach to building terrain? I think so. Yeah. You know, there's been some tweaks about uh, one is I'm fairly mindful now of the fact that the media that I'm sort of going to be showing off on is YouTube. So YouTube is very, very thumbnail and title oriented. Mm. You can have the best video ever. If it has a bad thumbnail and a bad title, nobody's going to click it. You're going to feel bad about yourself. Right. And you can have a fairly low effort video with a good thumbnail and a good title and it'll do really well. And that's a strange feedback to sort of get as somebody who's trying to create miniatures and things like that. Um, so mm. I'm mindful of that constantly. Um, I'm often thinking about while I'm building, you know, is there at least one photogenic angle for my thumbnail? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's usually helpful. Um, and then also, you know, I, I try to not title my videos as, you know, this is specifically what I built. It's mm. more of this is, you know, how can I get a, a title that's going to um, be broad enough to have a, right. a decent base of interest? Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I, I'm always mindful of staring, straying into like clickbait and false advertising territory. I don't want to do that. I don't want to, no. I don't want anybody to feel miffed when they click on my title. What I want yeah. is a broader range of people to invest the click in my <laughs> in my effort and see what yeah. I built because I think they're going to like it, you know. So, but um, you've also got skills that translate across. So if you're working on like a piece of terrain for say like a fantasy based game, you know, there's nothing stopping people from taking those techniques and using it on a like a sci-fi or historical uh, based piece of terrain. Is there? No, absolutely. Uh, of course that. And so, so, you know, you know, it, it, go through the sort of thought exercise of how you might title something like that. You can't put mm. all the keywords in the world. No, you're thinking I want to appeal to everybody who this might appeal to. How do I name it? You know, and there's sort of a, a convention. Well, there's no obvious way to do it. So I think about that a lot, but that wouldn't really affect my crafting. But what affects my crafting is I use a little bit more color than I used to. Mm -hmm. I use a little bit more, um, I think my pieces just keep getting bigger, which is interesting. <laughs> I can't really help. I can't really help myself on that. Um, That's the trip it. to Home Depot to get more shelves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I'm also, I think I'm always thinking now about, um, yeah, less about, um, uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm, I'm okay. thinking about all these things together. It's all I got right. Distracted looking at one of my shelves when you said shelves. So. Oh, sorry. That's, that's my bad. Um, no, all good. All good. That's no, all good. Um, I was gonna. You did touch upon about the response that you're getting from your um, uh, viewers and how they've like sent in photos of of terrain that they've you know um, obviously been inspired to create thanks to your YouTube channel. 
Um, what I'm curious to know is um, how, what's that response been like to your YouTube channel and has that in turn influenced some of the projects that you bring out? Are there like requests that come through from viewers saying, hey, Eric, it'd be great if you made you know, this or if you made that. Do you take that into consideration or is that part of the process at all? Um, a little bit, yeah. I mean, people are often suggesting that I do certain things and some of them are things that are already things I was planning to do or up my alley and some of them are, you know, things that I'm not interested in. And mm. that's, um, I mean, that is what it is. I appreciate people giving their suggestions and feedback. You know, a lot yeah. of people will sort of play the armchair you should have done this during the build or where's <laughs> no. this? And that's normal. That's YouTube, right? I think people, um, you know, they have their opinions. And, yes, uh, you know, one thing is um, before I started my YouTube channel, I would, I still made terrain. And yeah. sometimes I would have a piece of terrain on the bench for like four months or half a year or something, right? Like as yeah. you keep fiddling about thinking, what's the next decision on this? What, what, how, what other details can I add? You know, if I'm doing a time consuming process of one thing or another, then, you know, the time runs on. And with YouTube, there's more practical concerns. I, if I, you know, go silent for four months and then post mm. a big project, it's not going to be great for the success of my channel, which no. is something that calls into your previous question about what has changed is um, I do kind of gravitate towards slightly faster techniques sometimes just because I'm trying to produce a lot of projects for people to see mm. and I'm uh, trying to keep the channel, you know, current and relevant and interesting. And, and also, you know, there's, there's various different interests in, in my channel. There are 40 K fans, there are more time fans and Warhammer fantasy fans. And, yeah. and you know, so I want to consistently post stuff that's interesting to all these people all the time. So I don't want to spend six months working on one thing. Um, also because that's less interesting for me, but that, so that's definitely a, a something I, I consider is uh, sure. I could make this better with another three weeks, but how much better, yeah. how much incrementally better. And yeah. you know, it's, yeah, I could do um, 10 times more detail on this particular part, but mm. that would take another week, you know, and then somebody's unfailingly going to comment. You should have put detail on that part. And yeah, that's just part of that's just part of it. And, you know, I try to explain that there are trade offs in uh, producing something for a sort of meta medium like YouTube, where yeah, um, I'm, I'm not just making the terrain piece. I'm also making a video and also trying to have a channel where I post consistently and keep people engaged. And yeah. Um, and so there are more concerns than just what makes the very best piece of display terrain that go into that. Um, mostly, you know, on the sacrifice side, which is something I always try to find the right balance with. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, the other thing is people, I don't want people to, you know, and I think sometimes authors will talk about this. It's, yeah. It, you suggest ideas. And then if I use them in my work, I don't want you coming back and saying, Hey, why didn't you give me credit for my idea? I told you, you should put pipes on that thing. And yeah. There's the pipes and where's my credit? You're a plagiarist, you know? Oh, no. So, so <laughs> there's, there's sort of a double-edged sword with the unsolicited advice uh. and suggestions where I don't want 
my best ideas to be touched on by somebody and yeah. I think that it's actually their idea and I actually have no ideas of my own and I'm just well, a charlatan, you know? So <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say that those people are in a minority in this hobby. So, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, the, the, the vast majority of feedback is really positive and really That's nice. That's good to hear. And, um, yeah. But there's always going to be a couple people who, who leave a negative comment or whatever. And that's just anything in life. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to tune those voices out and just keep doing what you're doing, I think. Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, and you've, you've teased it a couple of times during this interview about some future projects. So I'm going to talk about the elephant in the proverbial room and ask what are some future projects that are on the cards. If you, if you can, obviously don't want to spoil things, but if there's anything you can tantalize us with. Sure. So right now on my desk is something with a bit of an Egyptian theme. Oh, and now you've got me. That's that's coming soon. As a, as have, a Tomb uh, Kings player, I'm very interested. <laughs> okay, good, good. You yeah. will enjoy this then. Um, yeah. I also have uh, some Tomb Kings, and um, I really enjoy that aesthetic. So yeah, so that's coming. Um, cool. There are, as I mentioned, a bunch of things for Necromunda coming. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the biggest projects I've ever done for the channel um, in that vein are coming. Um, there is, uh, I don't want to give too much away because, no. you know, as, uh, whenever I tease something, people start to hold me to it and say, hey, you said you were going to do this. Where is it? You know, and it's, it, all of a sudden I start to feel like uh, George R. R. Martin or something, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> Just, um, um yeah, it, it, I try. I have a tendency sometimes to overpromise. I try to avoid, try to avoid that. Keep keep my cards pretty close to my chest, and then just surprise my audience is kind of my approach. Um, you, you did touch there about the Egyptian terrain, and I'm I'm not going to pry into it any further. But when you're doing um, terrain that's quite sort of historical based, um, a great example is your. Um, little like Warhammer cottages that you'd made. Mm -hmm. um, there was a bit in it where you mentioned about the angle of the, of the roofs for thatching. And mm -hmm. I thought that was a really great detail that you, you brought up there. And I'd never thought about it, having lived here in the UK for uh, the better part of a decade and, and seen actual fat, like I don't have to go very far to find a thatched roof. Um, but I, I didn't realize that there had to be on that angle. Otherwise, you know, obviously the damp comes in and everything. But um, clearly you've, you've gone and done research into um, those historical based pieces. I'm just curious as to where you, you get that research from, like what's involved in that part of planning the terrain. So I'm certainly interested in history. and mm. I, um, That's something I am entertained by and gravitate towards is looking into history um one of my pet peeves a little bit is when somebody says well who cares about the thatch angle this is a world with dragons you know mm. it's like yeah there's magic so who cares about the damp coming in through the roof like, well, well then <laughs> the who cares about anything there, you know what i mean why don't you just play with cereal boxes on the table? yeah like why don't you have a jar of pickles be a grain silo yeah. you know it's because like, we're trying to get something a little closer to immersion <laughs> here you know sure. and, um I think often you don't realize what makes something look real until you learn more about it and why it's put together the way it is. Yeah. And um, so if I, if I have, if I know something about something, then, then I try to incorporate it. But that said, there's big limits to that. Like there's something, 
if I were doing a strict historical build, yeah, um, I would, you know, be very sensitive to making sure it looks just right. But a lot of my stuff is pseudo historical in the sense where, uh, you know, if I'm making a medieval cottage for a fantasy setting, if you look at Warhammer, yeah. for example, you have guys yeah. with, um, you know, those uh, sort of pilgrim hats that were popular in the 1600s. And then the Bretonians are wearing great helms from like the 1200s. Yeah. So there's a wide, wide sort of time period that the aesthetic is spanning. Yes, of course. And so you can't really dial in on one particular period and say, oh, you know, that's that's too many leaded glass windows for that time period because, you know, so and so. And I try to sort of keep it feeling right, keep it historically grounded, but not dwell on any one particular period or region of history. Mm. Um, but that said, there are still, you know, like actual physical limitations, something like the thatch that you mentioned would be something that would exist no matter what the time period is, you know? So, yeah. um, and, and with the example of the Egyptian thing I'm currently working on, I've done a fair amount of research just because I'm interested in Egypt and megalithic architecture and things like that. And one of the mm. problems I have is there's a lot of, um, yeah, I'll just talk about it. There's a lot of, uh, yeah. Well, there's a big difference between the old kingdom and the new kingdom and mm. the, the funerary rites. And, yeah. um, and, and I, there's only so far in depth I can go into that uh, before I just get lost about, you know, <laughs> what, what would be on the walls of a tomb in the, the new kingdom versus the old kingdom. Yeah. You know, what, what, what uh, objects of significance need to be around what. Yeah. Um, and then also there's the aspect of what uh, what does an unspoiled tomb look like versus a spoiled tomb yeah. that's been opened, how much stuff would be left, what would be the condition of various things, what what exactly moment of, in time am I trying to capture a snapshot of here? Yeah. Like for example, oh, I mean, I'll just tell you, I'm making an Egyptian tomb, okay? Okay, and, yeah. Uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, when they found it, was... Yeah. Uh, there's the very, very famous sarcophaguses, the gilded nested sarcophaguses and the interior one is, you know, 200 pounds of solid gold. Wow. And it's iconic. Yeah, of course. But when they found it, it was surrounded by several shrines, which yeah. are, you know, sort of these big blocky timber construction things. Yeah. Um, that completely obscure the, the sarcophagus. Yeah. So if I'm making a tomb, do I want it to look like it's been already opened do i mm. want it to look like or do i just kind of come up with some compromise that looks that captures the right aesthetic high points that i want you know i want yeah gilded sarcophagus and i want funerary goods and i want treasures and i want all these things yeah maybe not necessarily in line with how it would have actually looked in a perfectly sealed tomb when you first open it because you know it took howard carter eight years to to sort through the tomb goods of Tutankhamun. And, wow. And, uh, anyways, but you're starting to see sort of the complications that come up with when yeah. you're trying to craft something, keeping historical accuracy in mind, but also um, trying to capture iconic cliches in there as well to mm. have it sort of spark the imagination in the way that fantasy does. Yeah, you know? so that research is used to fuel the inspiration not necessarily dictate the end product right right yeah. and you know if i wanted to do it strictly the way it should be done historically it would be less visually interesting and yeah. it would be 
And so sometimes I do research and then throw it away (laughs) and maybe make a nod to it to try to head off some of the comments who said, well, actually, you know, the sarcophagus wouldn't be visible if it hadn't been disturbed before, you know, like like stuff like that. So I'll probably mention that in the video, similar to how I am here and uh, talk about that in the process. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it kind of reminds me, I remember when I was in high school and I started doing elective ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, my ancient history teacher, the first lesson we were in there, she, without a word, just told us to sit in our seats, fired up the old uh, TV, and this was back in the days with VHS, I'm really showing my age, um, and she put on the first 10 minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So pretty much the bit where, up until where Indy flies out on the... Um, on the on the plane you know mm-hmm. um and we're, and we're there watching it going wow cool yeah you know it's indiana jones this is awesome like if you know great we get to watch this in in ancient history class and she stopped it and just goes this is not exactly what ancient history is not about an archaeology I'm like, oh. <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah <laughs> yeah of- i mean i i i took a some art history classes in school and I studied ancient civilizations in high school. And one of the things that they told, they told me that I remember being very disappointed about is that archeology span is mostly, you know, sifting through pot shirts and uh, rubbish piles and stuff like that, finding, you know, bits of bone and yeah, it's, it's not so much the avoiding booby traps and finding solid gold idols. Yeah. But But uh, she backed that up by giving us, passing around a piece of pottery that she actually got off a dig in in egypt and it had a fingerprint in it from the the potter who made it and she had it carbon dated and it was over two thousand years old so that blew us away was the fact that you were sort of coming into contact with a human being two thousand years in the past so you know it, it is quite you know mind-blowing to think that yeah this is this is history and and this is what's involved in it so that little lesson kind of flipped our perspectives on our head. And I think for people like yourself and I, who are, who are in the hobby and terrain builders and, and, you know, there is obviously historical influences, even in a fantasy setting like Warhammer. Um, yeah. You know, we've got that appreciation for it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, one of the things that I've, that always blows my mind about ancient Egypt is this old kingdom, like the, mm. To the ancient Greeks, the the pyramids are were as old as the ancient Greeks are to us. Yeah, you know, like it's that's that's kind of always blows my mind. Yeah. But I think that uh, from a wargaming perspective, I tend to sort of gravitate more towards the Indiana Jones than I do to the pot shirts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which is the, these these things have a special place in our hearts because entertainment has distilled the sort of high points the tropes into video game dungeons and movie sets and things and um, sometimes these things resonate better than pure historical accuracy for a setting for a fantastic battle or an adventure yeah and so that's i always try to keep that balance in mind yeah Historic history is an unending well of inspiration and so i often get that question is what inspires you and a lot of the time it's just you know watching documentaries and reading historical fiction and, and those things. And it's, you'll, you'll, you'll be surprised how, how fantastic and amazing history is. If you yeah. haven't already dabbled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so 
really, uh, all I've got left to ask is what advice do you have to give to any aspiring scratch build terrain makers out there? Um, you know, obviously you, you mentioned that a lot of the big um, miniature manufacturers do have their own, you know, terrain kits, which are, are amazing and great, but there's those people out there who, who do want to, you know, play with cardboard and cans and foam core and make, you know, uh, all sorts of terrain pieces, be they uh, an Egyptian tomb or, you know, a hive, uh, something from, from Necromunda, <laughs> mm-hmm. some sort of, you know, shanty town or something. What, what advice do you have to those people out there who, who were taking that step into the, the scratch build terrain world? Well, um, here's a purely practical piece of advice, which mm-hmm. is if you're thinking about building a piece of terrain, um, figure out what shelf you're going to put it on after and measure, <laughs> measure the shelf, measure yeah. the dimensions of storage, and then build within those constraints. And uh, that'll serve you well. <laughs> I think we've, we've all been guilty of making terrain that's very ambitious and storage is not met those needs <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a real it's a real constraint certainly um yeah. so i would i would say that's that's just from a purely practical point but i would also say you know just keep your eye out um out in the world when uh when you're in a dollar store when you're in a grocery store when you're in a thrift store when you're mm. taking out the recycling and just start to think about shapes and how they uh how they would work in a miniature world. And um, once you start seeing things in this sort of different way, um, ideas will come to you. You know, you'll find a certain uh, piece of packaging or something and an idea will kind of just grow out around that. Mm. But I would say try to keep organized um, is a really big one. If you can keep your workspace organized and your your, and that'll help you tremendously in terms of productivity and in terms of your own sanity as well. <laughs> um and then I would also say um, one of the things that's a rule of thumb that I like to talk about is uh, sort of working from small to large. You get this, the, or sorry, from big to small. Okay. Exact opposite of what I said. Right. So you get the big shapes in place that are going to give the, the piece its overall sort of silhouette. And then you sort of refine down, adding smaller and smaller details towards the end. And so... There's an amazing thing where you can have something that looks like a jar. And if you put yep. maybe a scale barrel and, uh, you know, maybe a knife on top of the barrel, mm. just those two details will cue your brain into seeing it as a building in miniature. So using the tricks of suggestion to imply scale, yep. uh, small doors, small windows, things like that. Those are always your friend. And if you can ground things down to the small size, that's the key to the transformative aspect of scratch building terrain. So, so yeah, that's some very general advice, I suppose. Yeah, I guess if, if people want to get some more hints and tips, they should tune into your your show. Uh, so where's the best place to go to find out more about Eric's Hobby Workshop? Uh, YouTube. Eric's Hobby Workshop. I'm also on Instagram at Eric's Hobby Workshop. And uh, I've been uh, doing some live streams on YouTube as well recently. Okay. How have they been going? They've been going well. And I I really enjoy it because it's a sort of direct interaction with some of the people who want to ask me questions in real time and stuff like that. And that's uh, uh, so I've been enjoying that a lot. And we've been doing a couple different things on there. I've been painting some miniatures. I've been 
crafting some terrain and I've been going through white dwarfs we did on one and just talking about what I see and what inspires me and what uh, the way the hobby has gone since then and we have a lot of fun on there so and then also I've got cool. uh, I've got a discord uh, page or sorry a discord channel for my patreons um, right so if you wanted to support me on patreon it's Eric's hobby workshop same thing and then you can join the discord community that we're building over there which is growing really nicely and it's uh people sharing behind the scenes work in progress and uh, we can interact over there mm -hmm. and uh, that's that's a really fun thing so awesome we'll, we'll pop those links uh, to all of that in the episode description so that the listeners can go and check that out for themselves but eric uh, mate it's been great having a chat with you about uh terrain building and ancient egyptian history and the condition of tombs <laughs> um, uh, mate, it's been sensational. Thanks for coming on the show, and want to wish you all the best with the uh, the terrain channel moving forward. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's been a blast. And that was Eric from Eric's Hobby Workshop. If you're keen to check out his YouTube channel and see some of his impressive terrain projects, the links are in the episode description. Well, that's it for this episode of Brushing Up, but please do make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so that you stay notified when new episodes are released. But until next time, keep on hobbying. You've been listening to Brushing Up, a miniature painting and tabletop gaming podcast. If you have enjoyed the show, why not follow us on Facebook? Facebook.com forward slash Quartermaster Miniature Building Painting. And on Instagram, Instagram.com forward slash Quartermaster Studios. To find out more about Quartermaster Studios commission painting services, please visit QuartermasterStudios.com. Brushing Up is a Quartermaster Studios production with music supplied by BenSound.com.